Please listen carefully. Hey, everyone. So today is going to be a little different. There's so much content and so many gems in these last 10 episodes, which I cannot believe it's been 10 episodes. I feel so grateful to the guests that I've had on. I've learned so much. So I thought, you know, there are so many through lines throughout all 10 that I kind of wanted to highlight and show the greatest takeaways. So I'm going to do this off the cuff. I have my notes here and you might want to get a pen and a pad and take some notes because it's going to be a lot. But I wanted to just first express my gratitude for the contextualizing that these conversations do and the redefining of concepts that seem basic and are often simply accepted on face value. I appreciate the complication that it does to those concepts and really getting into the weeds on incredibly complex issues. So I hope that you found that this podcast maybe changed your perception or perspective in some way as I know it definitely has for me. So first, I think it's important to put the criminal justice system into a historical perspective, acknowledging the fact that the criminal justice system was constructed around the hyper-criminalization of blackness, right? We know this. With the inception of the United States of America, we had the institution of slavery. And through this, race was created. Race is not a biological trait. It's a social construction, And so blackness was created in opposition to whiteness to maintain a social hierarchy. There was this lack of familiarity, and due to blackness feeling foreign to white folks in power, there was a feeling of threat, a threat of the unknown. And in order to defend power and the social hierarchy, blackness was criminalized and seen as dangerous. And so the main purpose of police in the South at the time was simply patrolling black folks seeking freedom. The first prison in America, the Eastern State Penitentiary, was constructed in 1829, and the emancipation of slavery didn't go down until 1863. So at this point, those in prison were predominantly white. But then upon the Emancipation Proclamation, we see that there's an increase in policing of vagrancy and the congregating of Black folks. And then we start seeing the use of convict labor. So As more Black folks became incarcerated, those in power figured out ways to continue to use them for free labor. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, has a clause that states that slavery can exist as punishment. So then through the war on drugs, we see a movement towards hyper-surveillance of predominantly Black communities, resulting in more arrests and more incarceration. There are currently 77 million people in the U.S. who have a criminal record. One-third of all Black men in America as of 2010 have a felony conviction. The narrative around Blackness has never really shifted away from this idea of threat and danger. And so because there really hasn't been a restructuring of the criminal justice system away from these narratives until maybe the present moment with what we're seeing with the defund movement, it's really important to expose and unpack the system to stop assuming it's working and making us safe just because it posits to do so. Our criminal justice system and specifically prisons serve as this false symbol of safety. 
but we know that they actually cause more harm and more violence, not only to the individuals who are inside or the victims who have to deal with the system, but also to communities on the outside. By removing individuals and breaking down the economy in neighborhoods with high incarceration rates, by removing individuals who can love and supervise children in the community, by limiting opportunities upon release and pushing individuals to re-engage in potentially harmful acts to survive, by criminalizing addiction, by limiting opportunities for education, the list goes on. The criminal justice system also often creates more feelings of fear for those on the outside. We don't view prison as a place that makes us feel safe. We view them as a place that's harboring danger and threat. If we actually perceived prisons to be correctional institutions, the longer someone's inside, we should feel safer engaging or employing these people on the outside. But the longer you're inside, we should think, you know, like the more services you're getting, the more transformation you're going under, you're becoming a better person, you're being corrected. But we know that really all it serves is as a categorizing system of threat. So the longer you're in, you're actually just perceived to be more dangerous upon release. We're less likely to employ you. So I really appreciate the fact that this podcast and the guests I've had on have taken such a critical lens to see the complexities and the problems with the system we have today. I think what something that the guests did that I really appreciated too was the contextualization of crime. We have to understand that that which is deemed criminal, and so often we just accept the term and definition of crime on face value and just view people who engage in it as criminal. But we have to realize that crime is malleable. And again, it's just a social construct. That which is deemed criminal isn't necessarily an inherently immoral act. More often, it's a reflection of the interests of those in power at the time. So we see that definitions of crime in terms of the criminalization of certain drugs and activities differs over time and space. We also have to understand that for many who engage in that which is deemed criminal, and I think we have to continue to say that, right? Like that which is deemed criminal rather than just saying crime and accepting it as a fixed concept. But for those engaging in that which is deemed criminal, they are often doing what they have to do to survive. These aren't people that necessarily lack a moral compass. Many know that what they're doing is considered wrong or maybe causing harm, but as Malik and Dr. Yasser Payne explained, for many, it's not about right or wrong. It's just doing what you have to do to survive with the opportunities that you're given in the place that you're at. In my opinion, everyone is doing their best with what they have with their capacity, whether their mental capacity, their emotional capacity, their social capacity. I believe everyone is doing their best even the serial rapist, even the serial murderer. Because in my opinion, if they could do something else or better, they would. And what that means is that while we hold the person accountable and address the harms they've caused, we have to then turn the critical gaze onto the ecological systems, the environments in which these individuals are being raised to allow this situation to be their best. We are all culpable until we take action in upholding systems, institutions, and structures that incite violence and cultivate threat and danger. Turning the critical gaze to trauma-inducing systems is one of the outcomes of the conversations around resilience that I've had throughout these last 10 episodes. 
We can't applaud certain individuals for having a positive trauma response and demonize those who don't, while also not critically looking at why individuals have to be resilient in the first place. Resilience is an inherently othering concept that separates those from the same place into categories of success and failure. If we take Dr. Yasser Payne's redefinition of resilience, we realize that resilience is simply acting in a way to further your own survivability. So those who are dealing drugs, pimping, engaging in gun violence are actually enacting resilience, just as those from the same place who go to college and get a high-paying job are. We have to take the implicit notions of morality out of the notion of resilience because what is deemed moral or not, what is deemed right and wrong, again, are social constructs that, again, often serve to maintain social hierarchies. Even the worst crimes, like think about murder, depending on who commits it, it could be justified, it could be accepted, it could even be celebrated. The fact that certain people are executed or sentenced to death by incarceration for killing someone, and yet when we killed Osama bin Laden, everyone was cheering. That shows the distinction. The shooter of Osama bin Laden wasn't criminalized, they were celebrated. So it's not murder necessarily that we deem wrong, but the context of the murder. So the criminal label really depends on the power and privilege and social position of the individual committing the crime. When we look at crime rates, too, we have to realize that they are often heavily based on policing practices in that area. We know that if there was a hyper-surveillance of individuals in the communities, even in the suburbs, there would be far more arrests in those areas because they would be looking for it, but they're not. We use blackness often as a biological marker of threat. And so when we go in and proactively police these predominantly black neighborhoods, of course we're going to catch more people engaging in what is deemed criminal, especially when these neighborhoods lack opportunities and resources and abilities to tap into the mainstream. We also have to recognize that it's not only more people caught engaging in quote-unquote crime, but also that certain behaviors are just criminalized in certain neighborhoods and not others. So you might have a group of black men just standing on the corner hanging out, and they're stopped, frisked, questioned. But then in another neighborhood, there might be a group of white dudes congregating on the corner, and it's seen as normal or safe. So this goes into the idea of patrolling racial boundaries that's touched on in both Dr. Andrea Boyle's episode and Lake and Jordahl's episode. Borders are arbitrary lines. They're not ingrained on the land. And again, they're social constructs that serve people in power. These borders are not solely geographical, but racial. We patrol based on racial and ethnic boundaries, whether it's separating Mexicans from Americans or Blacks from whites. There are spatial landscapes that are seen as acceptable for certain groups, and once those lines are crossed, those individuals are suddenly perceived as dangerous and threatening regardless of their actions. You see a Black guy with a hoodie on walking in what would be considered an acceptable Black space, it's nothing. But the same guy in the same outfit walking the same way in a white space, he's up to no good. So the conversations all served to contextualize crime, to see the flexibility of our definitions and the racial under and overtones of the criminal justice system. 
when thinking about change, it has to occur on both a structural level and a cultural level. Policy can serve to hold systems and people accountable for their inequitable and harmful actions, but this doesn't immediately result in cultural change, right? Like if we think about the Emancipation Proclamation, yeah, it removed the slave label, but perceptions of Black folks didn't necessarily change immediately after that, and it hasn't really changed for many over time because we live in a segregated society. So in order to create cultural change, I think these kinds of conversations are required. Getting proximate to people who you might not encounter on the day-to-day because of our segregated society. Becoming proximate to concepts and issues you may not have to think about on a regular basis because you have the privilege not to. So I hope that this podcast has created a space for you to become more familiar with these incredibly complex topics. Now, when thinking about solutions, there's not a silver bullet. The responsibility for change is far more structural and community-based than on the individual level. The criminal justice system operates under an individual-focused lens. The idea that you can incarcerate one person at a time to enhance public safety. If this was the case, we would see a correlation between crime rates and incarceration rates, but we don't. There's a whole lot of data showing that there's no correlation. And this is in large part because the systems and structures that incite violence and engagement in that which is deemed criminal remain even when you remove one person at a time. We have to think about how Chris Wilson and Malik Jackson and Dewan Williams discussed how prison represented a moment of solace, a place to catch a breath, a place to finally sit with their own thoughts, a place to read, a place to gain services. This, to me, is not a reflection of success on the inside, but of failure on the outside. When a punitive system is the only space you have to find solace, we have to think about the environments in which the chaos is occurring that disallows people from finding support. One of the things that many of the individuals I spoke to engaged with this idea that individual change can't happen alone. You have to have support either through expanders and role models or through services. Almost all of the people I spoke with said that the number one service needed in the community is trauma care. Trauma is one of the most shared experiences for almost all people in prison. We incarcerate the poorest, least educated, most traumatized individuals. The age-old adage that hurt people hurt people is true. But we also have to realize that while, yeah, the prison population includes individuals who committed direct harm to others, it also includes people who committed nonviolent victimless crimes and innocent people. But because of shows and media, we think of everyone in prison as dangerous as the same. So hopefully these conversations serve to individualize and show that everyone inside has a story and every action is a reaction to something else. One of the things that I heard from many of the men is that they have to engage with redemption politics upon their release, even though they've served their time. They've served time, but they have not been redeemed. So we require these redemptive acts on the outside to make us feel safe whether it's writing a book or doing speaking engagements or contributing to victim services organizations, we know there are certain things, certain acts that make us feel safer with an individual. 
So why for many people who don't have to be incapacitated, who don't have to be removed from society because they're not an immediate threat to themselves or others, why can't we have them engage simply in these redemptive acts rather than being stripped of their humanity, rather than being stripped of their social connections to the community? What would it look like to hold individuals accountable, address the harms of the victims, address the needs of those wrapped up in the system, and make us feel safe. The idea that prison would be a place to correct someone, that a punitive carceral system would be a place for healing, to me is oxymoronic. So when we think about what to do, how to move forward, we have to be imaginative. We need to be creative. Something that makes me feel better about the possibility of change is to acknowledge that the criminal justice system, and I know I've said social construction a million times, but it is a social construct. Prisons as we know them today in America were just the brainchild of a group of Quakers in Pennsylvania in the 1800s. This wasn't a mountain or a tree or something ingrained in the fabric of our humanity, but was simply something that we created. And so with that understanding, I know that as humans, we have the ability to deconstruct it and construct something different. We just have to be imaginative and creative. And I really think that we need a complete overhaul. The way that I view reform is that the criminal justice system is a dirty bowl. And we just keep trying to throw new ingredients in the bowl. But no matter what, because the bowl is dirty, those new ingredients are going to get dirty eventually. So I really believe that we need a new bowl. And my life goal is to figure out what that is. But I definitely can't do it alone. We need to be collaborative. It has to be an interdisciplinary effort, bringing in a whole array of experts. And when I say experts, and this is something that the podcast really harps on, I'm not just talking about people with their PhDs. I'm talking about people who have real-world experience, who can speak directly to how this impacted them, their families, their communities. Rather than assume, we have to ask those most impacted what they need, what they think could work. And again, while structural change is absolutely necessary, I think cultural change is key. And I hope that this podcast has helped to shift perspectives and will hopefully contribute to cultural change more broadly. The next 10 episodes I'm really excited about. I've already recorded a couple of them, and they're really good. <laughs> I'm so excited for you to hear. I, I hope that you stay curious. And, and that's one of the things, again, like to create cultural change, you have to approach the unknown with curiosity rather than fear. And understand that fear often creates defensiveness and defensive acts are often reactionary without consideration of consequence. So we just have to be vulnerable and open-minded and open to change or at least open to hearing other people's sides. I hope that this synthesis was helpful and not too overwhelming, but I really thank you for listening and for engaging. I'm Abby Henson. And this is Critical Conversations. <laughs>